Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Jonathan McGarrian, a host on New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, we'll be talking to Audrey Horning about her book, Ireland in the Virginian Sea, Colonialism in the British Atlantic, published in New Paperback Edition in 2017 by University of North Carolina Press's Omohundro Institute. Welcome to the show, Audrey. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Happy to be with you. Okay, so uh, this study opens with the famous positioning by Finnis Morrison of Ireland in the Virginian Sea. The body of literature into which you intervene has largely adopted that framework, which sees Ireland as a proving ground for British colonialism in North America. Can you tell us how you came to this project and how you came to realize that this narrative was in need of revision? Well, this may be a slightly long answer um, because it has a lot to do with the trajectory of my own career. Um, I've been very fortunate to work on both sides of the Atlantic, um, based in Northern Ireland for uh, many years, and I still continue to work there, uh, as well as doing work in the Chesapeake. The longer I spent in Ireland, the the clearer it it was to me that this sort of very easy, uh, even assumed narrative from the perspective of the uh, American side of the Atlantic just doesn't really hold up. Uh, To start with the idea that uh, England worked out how to successfully colonize in Ireland um, uh, falls over the first hurdle because Ireland was not actually um, successfully colonized, although there were numerous colonial uh, episodes in the 16th century. So to begin with, there's there's a a problem um, with with the timing of the events uh, at hand. Uh, One of the other difficulties is the sort of easy uh, equivalency of um, looking at the Irish as akin to Native people in the Americas, which uh, on both sides of the Atlantic ignores a considerable amount of cultural diversity. And I think also um, downplays the uh, long connections between Ireland and the rest of the British Isles, uh, as well as the ability of early English um, adventurers and colonizers to actually recognize difference uh, amongst the peoples they were encountering. One of the things that really jumps out in this study is the way in which both archaeology and history commingle here. As a historian, your engagement with historical sources is really familiar to me and would be totally at home in our discipline. But the archaeological component really distinguishes this book uh, without detracting from it. In fact, it complements it. And in the book, you discuss the ways in which the two need to be brought to bear upon one another in this analysis. Yeah, um, it's something that's really important to me uh, as a scholar, because my own background is in both history and anthropology, anthropological archaeology. Um, And so I would tend to read, you know, across the disciplines. But, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, if I'm speaking as an archaeologist, archaeologists do very good work, but tend to write for other archaeologists. Um, The field of archaeology is smaller than that of history. Um, So it also means that the insights 
doesn't, you know, don't necessarily get a great deal of exposure. Um, archaeologists, you know, also to varying degrees are conversant with uh, historical sources and the work of historians, and sometimes not as much as, as perhaps they should be. Um, on the flip side, you know, the, the discipline of history now is, you know, has been going through its so-called material turn for some while. Um, and sometimes that can be, uh, shall we say, a bit frustrating as an archaeologist because we've long been looking at material things when they were just being discovered <laughs> by other scholars. So I really was keen to um, produce a book that could speak to multiple audiences, um, that could bring the insights from archaeology to historians in particular, um, but also vice versa, uh, so that hopefully uh, one or two archaeologists may pick up this um, book and also you know, begin to engage with some of the other perspectives and sources. So um, you know, I'm really a proponent for interdisciplinary work. Did you find that there were um, challenges that you encountered in the sort of uh, theoretical or uh, heuristic framework when it came to bringing those two kinds of bodies of evidence into conversation with each other? Because one of the things that really jumped out in the book was the the almost effortless extent to which you were able to pull it off. But, you know, as, as someone who does scholarship, I know that that can often belie a lot of frustration and difficulty. Yeah, I think um, this is going to be a, a sort of a two-part answer. One is the the nature of the sources are actually very different depending on whether I was writing about Ireland or I was writing about um, the Americas. Uh, so, you know, there was much more archaeological work to draw from, say, from the Chesapeake um, than there is from Ireland, but there are more documentary sources to work from on the Irish side. So trying to knit those things together and also knit together, obviously, two very different places. Um, I'm sure there are plenty of people who say I didn't quite succeed with that, but that certainly was uh, a challenge. The other thing I found uh, was something I wasn't actually expecting, and that was actually the nature of the writing itself. Um, You know, I've just self-presented as someone, you know, who who likes to work across disciplines, um, but most of my writing... um, has been for uh, archaeology or anthropology. And archaeologists tend to, um, in the text itself or in the prose itself, argue with other people. Uh, so in other words, we write, you know, so-and-so said this, but I think this based on my evidence. And so there's a lot of sort of engagement within the actual writing. Uh, whereas, um, you know, writing for the Omohundra Institute um, I was very much, you know, supported by a, a tremendous editorial team uh, and 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 kind of had to learn to write with greater authority, shall we say, than I necessarily uh, would ordinarily do. Um, so in other words, just to, to state things as, you know, obviously as I'm interpreting them to be or how they are, um, and then put all of that sort of argument with other scholars into the footnotes um, and that's not, um, you know, the way I had really written in the past. And so that was quite an interesting um, learning experience. Very glad to have done it. Um, but I did find it more challenging than I had really thought about going into the project. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's worth, I guess, emphasizing, right, is that the nature of the the areas that you're analyzing themselves sort of requires this kind of analysis in order to uh, cull any kind of, you know, viable um, story or narrative here, right? Because 
as you mentioned, in the, the Irish case, the English have been, you know, dealing with Ireland and, and engaging with Ireland for generations, centuries, uh, and there are written sources for that whole period. But the, um, the, the sources in the pre-colonial period uh, for, um, for North America require a more material analysis. Uh, I don't know if you'd agree with that characterization. Oh, completely, yes. Uh, you know, so there, there's obviously a very, very rich record um, from North America um, prior to, uh, you know, European engagements and arrivals, but it has to be read in a very different way because it is principally, you know, based on the material culture, the landscapes, and of course, you know, uh, traditions and memories, which is very different, obviously, than looking at, um, you know, English court records or even, um, you know, looking at um, the Gaelic annals, you know, which are very stylized sources themselves. So, Yes, the materials are all very different and, and have to be approached differently. Now, uh, before we dive into the you know specifics of the book, one one question that I did have, and, and you mentioned this as a difficulty several times, is the disparity between archaeological um, you know uh, engagement with between North America and Ireland. And I, I believe if I'm remembering it correctly, you say that there's been significantly more archaeological work done in North America than in Ireland. And I'm wondering what accounts for that that gap. I think it's an easy answer. And it, it's, a, it's a political answer, really. It's to do with colonialism. It's to do with how we view uh, and remember, you know, the 16th and 17th century. So, you know, obviously, there's been an awful lot of engagement in the Chesapeake region with trying to look at the archaeology associated with the early colony. You know, um, everybody knows about Jamestown. Everybody knows about the work that's gone on there for decades now, looking for traces of that first settlement. Looking at that, obviously, you know, requires um, engaging with the material in, in terms of the relations between the English and, and the native inhabitants of the land. In Ireland, on the other hand, you know, there, there's uh, Ireland has wonderful archaeology, um, very good, actually, um, legislation protecting archaeological sites, supporting archaeological projects. Uh, there's a great deal of public interest in archaeology. But the archaeology that people are interested in tends to be from much earlier periods, tends to be from periods that are not uh, marked by the, you know, continuingly fraught relationship between um, England in particular, uh, and Ireland. So it wasn't really until even the 1970s that people doing medieval archaeology, um, you know, got any kind of respect at all. Um, for post-medieval archaeology, you know, and I'm broadly, you know, putting that 1550 onwards, um, this was a, a very unpopular support until uh, I would actually put it, um, you know, into the, the peace process, the time of the peace process in Northern Ireland, uh, when, you know, beginning to look back at the material legacies of, of the early 17th century, which people look at as the root of the troubles, you know, in, in the present day or in the 20th century, um, it, again, it just wasn't a popular thing to do. Uh, why would you look at the record associated with, um, you know, period that, that many people on the island of Ireland would associate with uh, oppression? Uh, so um, professionally, I think, you know, for a long time, people steered away from it um, because of concerns about, you know, how it might be viewed by the public. 
and also steered away from it for reasons um, that are familiar around the planet. You know, the idea that we don't actually need to do archaeology of time periods when we have a documentary record. Uh, obviously, any good historian knows that documentary record is um, is biased in its you know in its perspective, its compilation, and its actual existence. Uh, so those are easy arguments, you know, for an historical archaeologist to counter. Uh, but when you add to it um, the the fraught nature of the period that I'm talking about in terms of the island of Ireland, it it makes it even more difficult. So moving into the book itself and its and its um its arguments, in my reading, you suggest that some of the problems historians have faced might be boiled down to an issue of mislocating causality. You note that Ulster and Virginia plantations were established at roughly the same time, involved the same personalities, and were financially intertwined. But the mistake lies in going from that overlap to inferring some causal or directional connection. Um, And so before we dive into the specifics of each of those, can you maybe talk about the shared ideological origins you source in Renaissance thought that gives that illusion of causal connection, if I am reading it correctly? Um. Well, the call, I mean, I think it's some of it's just a confusion over timings. Um, I think that the more I looked into the the things that are shared between the two places, i.e. the people and the rationales, uh, the clearer it also was of the ways in which people were making it up as they went along. You know, it, it, it emerges as far more chaotic um, than carefully planned and operating in a sort of linear um, manner. Um, in terms of the causality and the Renaissance ideologies, I have to think that one through um, in terms of what you're looking for. Certainly, you know, in both lands, and again, some some of the same people are drawing from uh, their reading of classical sources and and, and particularly their reading of what, um, you know, the the Romans um, were doing or were supposed to be doing. That, of course, all then gets tied up in, you know, changes in, um, you know, economic realities. You know, we can talk about the you know, emergence of some form of, of capitalist ideologies. Uh, and we also have to bring, you know, the Reformation uh, into play in terms of attitudes towards both lands um, and also in terms of, you know, all of the upheavals within um you know, areas that were affected by the Reformation in, in terms of disestablishment of um, churches and monasteries, you know, reorganization of the urban landscape, um, greater privatization, all of these things are, are coming together, um, you know, on the European side of the Atlantic to impact, you know, the views uh, looking, um, looking to the West. And I'm not sure I necessarily answered the question you had if you want to sort of maybe uh, give me another lead on that one. No, no. I mean, I, I think just one of the things that jumped out to me is that it seemed as if, you know, some of the similarities that, uh, you know, you can see in terms of the, the planning between uh, Ireland and Virginia, um, as you describe, a lot of that could, you know, not necessarily all of it, but a significant part of it can be rooted in the fact that, you know, there's there's a distinction between colonial planning and colonial practice. And a lot of that planning, in addition to things that you just mentioned, sort of the Reformation and attitudes about Catholicism, capitalist ideology, 
a lot of that is also drawing on the the process through which Renaissance um, thinkers engaged with classical history. And that classical history obviously entailed a great deal of colonialism and imperialism because Rome was sort of this imperial power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, that the sort of gap between the, ide- the ideas and, and the reality is um, probably the best example from Ireland is the effort of Sir Thomas Smith to um, plant the Arts Peninsula in, in Ulster, the eastern part of Ulster, in the 16th century. And he was, you know, a renowned scholar and he knew, you know, he knew his sources. Um, but when he sent his son to create this colony in the north of Ireland, it um, was unsurprising, unsurprisingly a resounding failure because he had no notion really of the, of the power of the Gaelic lordship in place there um, and the actual realities of, of the landscape and, you know, just about everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. So moving into like the meat of the text here, we begin in the 16th century and important to this book is attending to the chronology. The plantations of Munster in the late 16th century are really different from the Ulster plantation of the 17th century. And one of the things that happens in the 16th century is that Ireland is rendered unknown as you describe it. And this process of actively unknowing is really explored in the book, particularly um, as the fact of being familiar with the Irish makes it distinct from North America. So I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit more about that process of rendering the known unknown through, yeah, through active ideation. Yeah, I think that's also where it gets really fascinating in terms of our sources again, because it's been, I think it's been easy for um, scholars to look at the documentary record from the 16th century, which is, you know, full of these really rich and often quite offensive narratives by English commentators about the Irish. Um, and then those get taken, you know, for fact. Um, but they're very intentional documents. They're very stylized documents. They have very much have a political purpose. Um, and they're completely at odds, um, you know, with what was actually happening on the ground. And again, you know, Ireland and the rest of the British Isles are, you know, they're quite nearby. If you look at the entirety of the human history of the island of Ireland, it's it's one of a constant series of migrations, um, both from continental Europe and from the rest of the British Isles. So there's never a point in time, except for when Ireland was covered in glaciers, when it wasn't known um, and that there weren't these uh, interchanges. Uh, so it very much was a deliberate, um, a deliberate practice, and it, it stemmed really out of frustration of not being able to, of England, the crown, not being able to exert uh, as much control over the island as as was desired. Um, you know, and all kinds of different mechanisms were put into place to try to, um, you know, one impose reformation to. Uh, bring together Gaelic and Old English, and Old English being the descendants of the Anglo-Normans in Ireland, bringing them to heel, uh, which didn't necessarily um, work particularly well. Um, And then finally falling back on efforts to plant. That didn't work so well either because some of those efforts to plant new colonists in Ireland were actually meant to be spearheaded by Gaelic and Old English elites who didn't quite play along with the... um, with the idea, and then finally outright warfare. 
Now, the book, as I mentioned, one area that it begins with is, is Munster in um, Ireland. And then at a similar time, the late 16th century, the early colonial ventures of the British in North America is the colony at Roanoke. Um, and even though the book does a lot of you know, um, undermining of the putative causal connections between the colonial ventures, you know, it doesn't claim that there are no, there are no things that are similar or, you know, parallel or mirror each other. Uh, And one of the things that you note is the haphazard quality of both Roanoke and Munster and how each was riven by conflict and failure. So uh, I'd I'd love if you could, you know, uh, expand on that a little bit. Yeah, it's, um, you know, this would have been a very short book if um, I just set out to to prove that Ireland was not the successful proving, you know, testing ground for North American colonialism, because there are actually, there are a lot of connections, and I think that they do need to be attended to. Um, and those connections, you know, often are actually, you know, the same individuals, um, the same uh, you know, some of the same schemes, the same expectations. So when it comes to comparing uh, what was happening in Munster and Roanoke, you know, some of the people that we have to talk about are, you know, Walter Raleigh, of course, who was a servitor soldier in Ireland, um, you know, as well as obviously spearheading, although not participating in the Roanoke voyages. But my favorite character um, who is involved on both sides of the Atlantic is actually Ralph Lane. And, you know, we know Ralph Lane mostly for his sort of failed um, leadership of the Roanoke colony and for giving it up and sailing back with Sir Francis Drake. Uh, We don't pay as much attention to what happened to him uh, subsequently. You know, Ralph Lane was briefly a servitor in Ireland before he was called up to go to Roanoke. Um, And then when he, um, you know, when that venture didn't work out quite so well for him, he basically... um, I was going to say retired to Ireland. Retired would be incorrect. Um, he moved uh, to Ireland, to Ulster, um, to a castle on Strangford Lock. And he spent the rest of his career really trying to promote uh, plantation and colonization in the north of Ireland. Uh, in part, um, he was um, quite concerned about relations with Scotland at that point in time, particularly Highland Scotland. Um, but he also was very clear uh, that doing this sort of adventuring in Ireland would be an awful lot easier uh, than it was in Roanoke. Um, whether he took many lessons from his you know, failed diplomacy uh, with the native people in the Roanoke region, it's, it's hard to tell. We don't have, we do have writings from him, but not, um, they're not that you know, specific on that particular issue. Uh, but clearly he did not enjoy his time um, in North America. And I, I like to think about him sitting in his castle at Ring Hattie with one of his good friends and supporters, who was um, Sir Arthur Chichester. And Chichester would later become the Lord Deputy of Ireland in the early 17th century when the Ulster Plantation itself was launched. Uh, but Chichester had actually also sailed to the New World, and he uh, accompanied uh, Drake um, and Hawkins on their last voyage, uh, which involved um, failed uh, altercations with the Spanish. And in the end, um, both Drake and and Hawkins died. And so Chichester limped back, uh, never went back to 
the Americas um, and spent much of the rest of his career denigrating uh, the place. So, um, you know, again, that idea of success in one place leading to success in the next place and onwards and upwards uh, really falls apart quickly, you know, when you look at it, uh, even, you know, with a few, through the perspective of a few uh, individuals. Uh, some of the other Roanoke connections with Munster, you know, um, you know, much of our, I guess, visual understanding of the Algonquian people in the Roanoke region comes from, you know, the fantastic watercolors by John White, the artist John White, who was also the governor um, of the final Roanoke colony. Well, John White um, ended up, um, you know, living out the rest of his life in Ireland on lands held by Walter Raleigh. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, Thomas Harriet, the great scientist who chronicled um, both native society and, um, you know, the, the, the natural world in the Roanoke area, also uh, ended up getting property in Ireland uh, in the Munster Plantation, again, associated with Walter Raleigh's lands. So, um, you know, there's obviously many, many ways to look at this period, but one of which one way that's quite rich is through these these individual lives. Another area of similarity ties into one of the central motifs of the book, which is the forceful way that you insist that we attend to the disunity and polyphony of both Gaelic, Irish, and Native Americans. And you document how the factionalism of late medieval Gaelic politics colored responses to English colonialism, just as it did in the Chesapeake context. Yes, and here I want to be careful, I guess, in 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 how I respond because, you know, one of the other tropes in comparative scholarship in the past has been uh, the equivalency between Native societies in the Americas and the Irish, um, and the reasons for that are clear because the English often wrote about them in the same way, you know, very derogatory, uh, you know, savages and and all the rest of those those caricatures, um, you know. But it does mean we also also have to take those writings seriously as emblematic of um, a particular, I think, constructed worldview on the part of the English. Um, when we start to then look more closely at what was happening on either side of the Atlantic, yes, you're absolutely right. It's factionalism um, is 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 key to understanding, you know, how the English, who were not always all that well organized. Uh, managed to be successful, um, certainly successful in planting colonies in North America um, and successful to varying degrees uh, in Ireland, which I suspect we'll come back on to. So when it comes to looking at Ireland and, um, and you know, particularly Ulster, but really the whole island, you have competing lordships. And some of those lordships are, you know, headed up by the old English, who I mentioned before, some are headed up by uh, Gaelic lords, um, they have sometimes allegiances with one another, sometimes they don't. Uh, when we look at the north of Ireland, um, we have some very, very powerful, uh, principally Gaelic lordships in the 16th century. And we also have very strong connections with Gaelic Scotland, um, and particularly what was left of the medieval lordship of the Isles, uh, which is the MacDonald clan. And so you have a lot of competing um, polities, if you like, on the ground. Sometimes there are allegiances between powerful uh, Gaelic lords, you know, in Ulster. Uh, the ones that I, I probably pay particularly attention to in, in this book 
are the Okahans um, and their lands are what became the Londonderry Plantation and the McDonald's. And the McDonald's are controlling significant parts of uh, what is County Antrim uh, now, as well as connections to the Isles. And sometimes these Gaelic lords are working alongside the English because they see it as being in their interests, in their interest basically being maintaining the power of their lordship. And at other times, they're obviously at odds. Uh, when we look at the at the Highland Scots who are engaged in the north of Ireland, you know, the Macdonalds were, were fantastic shapeshifters, if you like, uh, working with the English against the Irish, then working with the Irish uh, against the English, according to um, their own needs. Uh, the, the most powerful Gaelic lord in the north uh, was Hugh O'Neill, um, which would be a familiar name to many, I think. And he's somebody who is is a sort of quintessential shapeshifter because he's a Gaelic lord, but he was raised in an English household in the English Pale, Dublin. So he's conversant with English society and English culture and English materials, um, while at the same time he emerges as the most powerful leader of the Gaelic resistance. Um, so this is all very, uh, I think, you know, these are people who are quite self-aware, uh, but like anyone else, they can't predict the future. Um, and so, again, so much of the subsequent history of both lands is read from a kind of, you know, presentist position where we know what happened, but these people didn't know what was going to happen. So when uh, Donald Balakokan gives up his lands to the English crown in return for English title to those lands. That's um, a very sensible strategic decision on his part, uh, except that he couldn't count on the fact that the English didn't uphold their part of the bargain and he gets arrested and thrown into jail and, and dies in the Tower of London, you know, subsequently, you know, effectively losing all of his power in his lands. But he couldn't have known that that was going to happen. Um, the bottom line is that there was no unified sense of, of an Ireland to launch a unifying resistance to the English. That sort of notion of a nation um, is, you know, you got to wait another century or two for that to really um, pertain. If we look at um, the Chesapeake region, uh, you know, obviously the scholarship, our understanding is very much dominated by um, the information we have about um, the, pa the Powhatan Paramount Chieftain and, you know, the very, very powerful leader, Wahun Seneca, um, you know, but that is, of course, a lot of that knowledge is being drawn through what the English uh, have written about it. So, uh, again, there are probably, you know, well, there was clearly internal divisions within that Paramount Chieftain and that Paramount Chieftain was always, you know, in a, in a, in a, place of transformation, trying to absorb other polities or engaging in diplomacy or warfare uh, with other tribal groupings, you know, elsewhere, you know, to the West, the Monarchies and Matahoics, uh, the relationship between the Powhatans and the peoples of the Albemarle Sound, you know, which I discussed earlier in relation to Roanoke, isn't always clear. Um, so we can't, you know, assume, again, some kind of unified native resistance to the incoming English. The same, you know, the same thing we could see uh, the different responses of different tribes in New England to the arrival uh, of the English, you know, in not much later, but of course this year, 400 years ago. Uh, so yes, there's, there's no sense of, of nation in either place. And that provides, or, you know, provided the sort of um, spaces for the English to 
um, I guess, wedge themselves into or, or intrude. Uh, another consistent motif, um, which we've alluded to already, actually, is the gulf between plan and practice. And for example, in the, in the Irish context, imposing on Ireland English visions of agriculture was central to what they perceived as their civilizing mission. But when we look at practice, in reality, what we see is English colonists adopting elements of Irish cattle pasture, a cattle pastoralism. Um, so, yeah, if you could explore that a little bit, that would be great. Yeah, that's something I've, I've continued to really look into, particularly when it comes to the north of Ireland, because, you know, the, the narratives about the Ulster plantation, you know, which was a much more organized effort, certainly than, than Munster in the 16th century efforts, the narratives about the Ulster plantation are that the Ulster planters came in and they successfully, um, you know, established a new form of agriculture. They reordered the landscape. The landscape now, you know, went from the uh, purportedly wild landscape of the Gaelic world to one that, you know, was filled with, you know, nicely tended hedges and fields and um, and and so on and so forth, cereal cultivation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and those things do characterize the Ulster landscape in later centuries. You know, there's no doubt uh, lands were drained. This is part of the improvement ethic. Um, cereal growing is quite important in the east of Ulster. So people, you know, in the 20th, 21st century can look around at Ulster and, and see that landscape and then push it back, you know, back to causality again into the early 17th century. Uh, but actually, you know, in doing the landscape analysis and looking at the archaeological evidence for the transformation of that landscape, looking at routeways and where settlements are constructed, it's not actually happening until at the earliest, the late 17th century into the 18th century. Um, and that's where I've, I found it really interesting to think about the ways that sort of multiple different understandings of economy can exist at the same time. So. Um, you know, I can I can look at some of the plant, incoming planters, for example, some incoming Scottish planters to places in Strabane, County Tyrone, uh, into Donegal. They are coming in fairly well financed, which many planters weren't. Um, so they're, they're setting up, you know, nice castles. They are, you know, they have tenants on their lands. They're doing the things that on paper they're meant to do. But instead of you know, imposing some kind of form of, you know, of, of cash rents or, or wage labor, which you would expect with a sort of capitalist imperative, the way that their tenants are actually, um, you know, paying their rent is, is through cattle, um, which is actually exactly the same way that Gaelic tenants would have, you know, basically been paying tribute to a Gaelic lord. Um, one of the uh, very good examples that I used quite a bit in this book is that of Sir Thomas Phillips. Sir Thomas Phillips was um, an English military man, served in Ireland for a long time. Uh, he actually, you know, is credited in part with coming up with a scheme for the Londonderry Plantation, which was basically extorting cash out of um, the London companies, the great medieval merchant guilds and carving up O'Cahan's country, the O'Cahan Lordship, and granting it to the London companies. So Phillips was very keen on paper that the London companies should not be able to have any Irish tenants. They all had to be removed, and they had to build certain buildings and, you know, uh, and behave in certain ways and certainly uh, engage in, um, in agriculture. But he himself, 
he exempted himself from all of those regulations. Um, he maintained uh, Gaelic tenants on his land. He took over actually um, an Ocahan castle, and he seems to have maybe used it as a way, as a space for sort of enacting Gaelic hospitality rituals. Um, and then he also, of course, built himself a nice English-style manor house so he could sort of self-project uh, as doing all of those sort of early modern things he was he was meant to do. Um, and he did build a new town, um, Newtown Limavady, um, according to all the latest civic ideologies, which was wonderful. Uh, but he also engaged in pastoralism um, and he operated a townhouse. And so, you know, so he's... He's sort of trying to work all sides of the equation um, because, you know, the, the land was not empty. There were patterns in place. There are ways of living um, that were deeply rooted. And you have a minority of people coming in and inserting themselves at the top or trying to insert themselves at the top uh, of that society. So, you know, logically, you know, they have to find a way to work within um, those existing cultural practices and constraints. I think it's only historical hindsight that makes us somehow not see that when it's actually happening. The same thing happens, um, you know, in the Chesapeake. Um, very rarely do, do we remark upon the fact that, you know, the extent of the early Virginia colony was in effect the extent of the lands of the Powhatan chiefdom, you know, the knowledge of the land, the names often for, for places um, came directly from indigenous uh, practices and, and knowledge that, um, that were gained by the English. So, you know, the colonial doctrines of res nullius and terra nullius are just that, they're on paper, they're doctrines, you know, they're not, um, they don't describe the reality. The career of Sea Captain Christopher Carlyle is illustrative of the complicated and interconnected dynamics of this period. Um, and I'm wondering if you could sketch some of his activity and, and how that plays out. Yeah, gosh, I hadn't thought about him in a while. Thank you for bringing him up. Yes, he's, a, he's an interesting character. He can kind of stand in, I think, for a lot of people in the 16th century, a certain class of people, English people, who are... Um, you know, they're, they're in the military, you know, they're, they're, they're in service, um, but they're looking around for many, many ways to try to make their own fortune. So uh, Carlisle was a constable in Carrickfergus. Carrickfergus is in the eastern part of County Antrim in Ulster. Carrickfergus was a very um, important English garrison. There's actually um, an Anglo-Norman uh, castle there that continued to be used for 800 years. It was used into the 20th century um, by English forces. And so he is based there, um, but he is like so many of these other folks. Um, I think we could describe him as a pragmatist. So he is in charge, at least for a period of time, of this English garrison town in Ulster. And Carrickfergus was located in a place that was... Um, you know, was within um, the powerful Clandy Boy O'Neill um, lordship, but also a location where there were, you know, adjacent to considerable um, McDonald settlements. So, you know, anyone who's going to maintain any kind of foothold in that location has to find a way to um, engage with both the O'Neills um, and McDonald's. 
And Carlyle and others in Carrickfergus um, basically seem to have uh, turned a blind eye to, you know, not just um, people visiting the town and making use of the markets and the port there, uh, but actually residing and living in the town. Um, the same thing happened in Newry, uh, which is in uh, County Down, the southern part of Ulster, where the Bagnall family, who were, uh, again, you know, prominent English soldiers, uh, also turned a blind eye to the presence of Irish um, in the towns that they were in charge of. So, you know, there's another example of, of ideas versus um, reality. Carlyle also was, you know, a ship's captain. And so he, um, like many others, you know, wrote um, a treatise on how he would be the one to basically, uh, I'm, I'm overreaching here a bit, uh, but, you know, to be the one to deliver uh, North America on a plate um, to Queen Elizabeth. Uh, this, of course, uh, did not happen, as it did not really for any of our other adventurers in that period. But the fact that he was thinking that way is fascinating in terms of the sort of um, uh, broadening of horizons, but also lack of, you know, experience and knowledge of, of, of the, the reality of a transatlantic voyage uh, and, you know, engaging with, with peoples on the other side of the, then the other side of the world. Well, hopping over there across the Atlantic, uh, you begin by stressing that the native peoples um, allowed the first colonists, the first English colonists, to survive by choice predicated upon, you know, a century of contact and familiarity that we don't usually associate with what's now the central Atlantic seaboard. Can you elucidate some of the ways, um, some of the knowledge indigenous peoples outside of the Spanish territories would have had on the eve of, Eng of the English arrival? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, the Spanish do have to be part of the story. Um, and even in the area, you know, where I was focusing on the Chesapeake, the Spanish had uh, a presence there. Uh, you know, there was a Spanish mission in what is now Williamsburg today. So, you know, there are very close um, engagements there. You know, certainly even if we're looking at um, levels of knowledge that are not, you know, direct one-on-one uh, -on -one European and, and native person in the North Carolina, Virginia region, as it is today, um, you know, people moved around, uh, certainly, and communications went between tribes, um, different polities, objects traveled uh, as well. So, um, you know, and that's, again, where the archaeological record is extremely helpful when, when you find these objects that have moved, you know, through native networks over considerable um, distances. And I think, again, you know, not thinking about the Spanish imprint in the Chesapeake region is a factor of, um, you know, the, the nature of well, his, historical understandings and history teaching, um, you know, where we focus specifically on the arrival of, you know, the English colonists in 1607 to Jamestown. And it's almost as if nothing had happened before that. Um, you know, it's it, one of the most um intriguing examples of uh, a direct connection between uh, native peoples in the Chesapeake and Spanish is, of course, um, Pap uh, Papaqueno or Don Luis, who was, appears to have been anyway, a, a Powhatan Indian, Algonquian Indian, who was captured by the Spanish, lived in the Spanish colonies, traveled to Spain, and then came back with that Spanish mission in the 1570s 
to, you know, in, in the Chesapeake region nearby uh, Williamsburg, and of course was central to the destruction uh, of that mission, uh, having returned to his own people, uh, or so, you know, we can intuit from the Spanish documents. There, you know, there's some um, suggestion that he also was um, in at a great, great age of over 100, uh, also uh, potentially central to one of the Powhatan uprising against the English in the 17th century. I think that that might be a stretch too far, uh, but his story is one where we do see that, that direct connection. And whatever knowledge he and others who may also have been kidnapped, who were just not recorded, brought back, um, you know, we should really not denigrate the power of those understandings, you know, within uh, native societies and native communication uh, networks. Uh, certainly for, you know, coastal polities, they would have been familiar with seeing uh, ships, um, you know, plying this part of the Atlantic. The more we move northward to think about those engagements, um, you know, the fishing, um, you know, up in places like Newfoundland was happening throughout the 16th century, uh, involved Portuguese, the English, uh, other Europeans, um, and there was considerable knowledge uh, amongst native people in, in those regions uh, of, um, of these fishing people who, you know, at least at the start, weren't um, remaining there year round. So uh, that knowledge did travel. It's just harder for us to document that. Um, but I think seeing some of the responses of native people to the arrival of colonists makes it clear that there was already knowledge. Uh, and there we have to filter out some of the more, um, I think, um, overblown statements of um, some of our early colonists. Uh, you know, um, Thomas Harriet saying, you know, they, that the native people didn't know whether to think them gods or men, uh, I think is is really a little bit more self-promotional than uh, actual reportage. Yeah, in, in in analogy, I was I was kind of thinking about in in Jewish historiography, there's something called the Lacrimose School, which basically said that like all of Jewish history was essentially this slow moving tragedy leading up to the Holocaust, and that's been challenged in some of recent historiography. And I feel like there might be an analogy to be made here where a lot of the standard story is one of kind of inevitable tragedy from the beginning and eradication. But what I really loved about this book as someone who's less familiar with it is that it really challenges that narrative. Yeah, I think that that's a, that's a really interesting um, connection to make because again, it, it is reading things through hindsight um, and, you know, particularly from, you know, an Irish perspective, um, there does seem to be this sort of presumed inevitability uh, about the way things um, turned out and the fact that um, it's it can be seen as unresolved. The legacies of plantation can be seen as unresolved in the very existence of Northern Ireland today. Um, so, you know, there is a value, I think, in today's world of re-examining what we think we know about what happened in the past uh, to challenge that sense of inevitability. And when you challenge that presumption, um, I think it opens up different possibilities in the present. Uh, so, um, you know, this is, this is not something that's in this, in this book, but, 
you know, when I when I work in Northern Ireland and live in Northern Ireland, uh, it's very hard to, you know, escape the sort of division of society and, you know, the, the work that everyone is trying to do in terms of um, being a post-conflict society. And so much of that is rooted in different understandings of the past, uh, which are taught differently in schools. Um, you know, children in Northern Ireland tend to be educated in either de facto Protestant or de facto Catholic schools. Um, you know, this two traditions model is also rooted in assumptions, connections in the 16th and 17th century with, uh, you know, today's Catholic or nationalist community rooted in, uh, perceived anyways, rooted in the Gaelic society, um, Protestants in planter society. Um, and so when you actually start to, you know, say, take people to archaeological sites and present them with, you know, the evidence of, uh, well, for one thing, you know, co-location of residences um, that the Irish continued to be living in places where they were supposedly removed um, through plantation uh, or looking at how planters, even ones as, um, you know, uh, dedicated to the mission as Sir Thomas Phillips, we're actually adopting many uh, Gaelic practices um, and, you know, and thinking about shared language, shared material culture. It's not to suggest that everything was wonderful in the 17th century because it most assuredly was not, um, but it makes people in the present uh, perhaps rethink um, possibilities and rethink what they thought happened in that time period that led is thought to have led inexorably to the conflicts of the 20th century. The uprising of 1622 marks a turning point in the dynamics of the Chesapeake, uh, and it's also a sort of window through which a lot of the divergence between the two colonial ventures happens, if I, if I kind of have that correct. Yes, and I think here I, I'm going to limit that in part to the sort of um, James River region in the Chesapeake. So what we see before... 1622, and this is so obvious from the archaeology at Jamestown, particularly the work of, of colleagues in, in the Jamestown Rediscovery Project. The early years of, um, you know, the James Fort, the assemblages associated with that period are dominated by Native materials, especially Native ceramics, uh, which very much indicates how reliant the English were on the presence of Native um, people in the fort providing food, uh, doing other activities. You know, there's evidence for people making stone tools within the confines of the James Fort, which is, of course, not what historical memory tells us was a relationship between uh, the two groups of people. Um, and so really up to 1622, what you would have seen, and this does come through uh, the documentary record as well to some extent, uh, is the proximity of Native people and the English. Yes, there are obviously uh, challenges along the way, um, but there is there is daily uh, proximity. That daily proximity actually allowed for the events of uh, March 1622, uh, when Native people went into English houses, as and it's recorded as they did every day. Um, and instead of sitting down for a shared meal, uh, of course, um, brought out the weaponry. Uh, so you know. Those events, the violence of those events, I think, have, have overshadowed, understandably, the sort of intimacy that allowed it to occur, um, you know, and, and the ways that the English somehow didn't see it coming is also very interesting to contemplate in terms of the nature of, of the relations um, at that point in time. 
this then is reflected archaeologically because all of a sudden, you know, or maybe not all of a sudden, but but pretty shortly afterwards, if you look at the archaeological record of pre-1622 uh, supposedly English sites, there's a very strong native imprint in terms of native materials. After 1622, in the, the, the James River region itself, we don't see that so much at all anymore. Um, that's actually different in the Maryland colony. So some recent work um, reassessing archaeological sites along the um, Potomac, uh, which is led by uh, Julie King of St. Mary's uh, College. What we saw in that work was the continuing presence of um, native materials uh, on English colonial sites. So there are different relations happening in that part of the Chesapeake, which again, you know, serves to challenge any kind of, um, you know, broad brush understanding of um, the early uh, Chesapeake uh, as a whole. So, so again, that that shift around 1622 really is, you know, Jamestown and its surrounding region, uh, where it's, um, you know, very explicitly the policy to limit engagements and to, um, you know, in many cases punish. Um, the members of the Powhatan groupings who had participated in the uprising. When you return us to Ireland, we go back a few years, but another war similarly marks a turning point. The Nine Years' War and the flight of the Earls paves the way for a new, more muscular phase of English colonialism in Ireland. What were the goals and visions that went into the formation of what is known as the Ulster Plantation? Right. Well, the Ulster Plantation was intended anyway on paper to sort of fix all the problems from the, the 16th century efforts. Um, and it's also greatly facilitated by the fact uh, that the north of the island, um, the sort of uh, political leadership was very much um, severed. And it was severed uh, through obviously the losses of the Nine Years' War, but also the episode known as the Flight of the Earls in 1607, which saw um, O'Neill, um, O'Donnell and others leave from Rathmullen, County Donegal, to sail to the continent. Um, now, the idea, um, I think, you know, we presume, but I think it's a, it's a pretty solid presumption, was that they would again enlist the aid, particularly of the Spanish, who had come to the aid of the Irish previously. Um, but for a variety of reasons, the earls and their followers are unable to return. So there's a political vacuum left in the north. Um, the only remaining really powerful Gaelic lord at that time was Donald Balakokatan, who I mentioned earlier. And so he is, you know, um, you know, basically put out of commission through being arrested and actually not charged with anything. Uh, but nonetheless, um, his lands are, are acquired. So that means that a, a significant part of the north of the island is then open uh, to this new scheme. And this new scheme was uh, more organized in the way that it divided up the lands. So some lands were given to servitors and military men. Uh, some lands were given to the church. Some lands, um, but not that many, were given to uh, loyal uh, Irish um, landholders. Um, but the bulk were divided up between uh, incoming Scottish and English planters. Um, O'Cahan's lordship or O'Cahan's country becomes uh, County Londonderry, and I mentioned before, bringing in uh, the London companies. 
other requirements for the Ulster plantation focus very much on new ideas of civic um, improvement and ideology. So there were meant to be uh, 20 odd towns um, to be established, um, as well as a series of smaller villages, all linked to markets in the towns. It was to be highly regulated. Um, each incoming planter was supposed to bring a certain number of people, build certain kinds of houses, um, and for the most part, get rid of the Irish. So on paper, it looked absolutely brilliant. In reality, of course, uh, the demographics, you know, went against it. Um, obviously, you know, major changes were wrought by the Ulster plantation, but nowhere near to the extent um, that the plans were, shall we say, looking for. Now, one of the major things that this book does, as we mentioned, is sort of turn the directionality of influence on its head, right? Instead of um, Ireland serving as the proving ground for North America, if we're going to have any causal influence at all, you make the argument that actually a lot of the lessons that have been learned in North America are what influenced some of the ways that the Ulster plantation was planned and put into practice. Yeah, I think that I think there's a lot of back and forth. Um, and again, I don't want to say one led to to the other um, because, you know, the timings don't don't work. That They're happening at the same time. Um, I think back again on people like, you know, Ralph Lane and Chichester, who I mentioned earlier, who clearly were influenced by the failures of what they tried to do in North America in terms of what they did um, in in the north of Ireland. Um, other ways, you know, it's it's. There are a lot of differences when you get into the 17th century. Uh, certainly, you know, town building in the Chesapeake was was a bit of a challenge, but people never stopped trying um, to build towns. Um, town building in Ulster has been seen as far more successful, and it was it was more successful than the Chesapeake, but it still wasn't a complete um, and, and perfect success. So the, the original number of towns was significantly reduced. Um, and many of the towns, you know, they're, um, you know, meant to be fortified, they're meant to be exclusively English, and that was clearly not the case um, for, for any of them. Uh, I think I'm going off on a tangent here from what you actually asked. Would you give me another pointer, please? Oh, no, no. I mean, I, I think that that kind of sums it up pretty accurately. I mean, one area of similarity, I don't know necessarily how causal they are, but there is something interesting in the way that uh you know, that the, the two companies were sort of interconnected and also in competition with each other. But there are both in the Virginia context and in the Irish context, um, significant objections to and dissatisfaction with the way that the Virginia company and then the London companies are running their respective colonies. Oh, absolutely. Not, you know, neither one of them did what they were supposed to do, um, in part because those expectations were, were nearly impossible. Um, in terms of, you know, I mean, one of the starkest connections between the two places, um, you know, is the, you know, when the uh, Londonderry plantation was launched, basically the London companies were compelled to invest in it. They had actually pretty much no interest. That's clear when you look at the records, you know, of, of their various and sundry meetings. But they were compelled by the king to invest in uh, Ulster. And so 55 of the 56 companies that were involved in, in the Londonary plantation withdrew their funding um, from, or sorry, 55 of the 56 involved in the Virginia company and the Jamestown venture withdrew their funding. 
when they were required to invest in ulsters. So, um, you know, I think there's a very strong connection between the loss of that funding and support and, of course, what happens um, at, in early Jamestown in terms of the, the starving time and the difficulty of supplies um, and, and so forth. So that is one very, very uh, direct um, economic link between the two. Uh, when it comes to the London companies in uh, the London Dairy Plantation, again, a lot of them didn't want to be involved. Some of them immediately farmed out their lands um, to an individual undertaker, one who undertakes uh, plantation, and they did their best to wash their hands entirely. Some of the other companies tried a bit harder, you know, and sent out agents and, you know, you know, did do some uh, building, um, but none of it satisfied uh, Sir Thomas Phillips, um, who, you know, uh, had had a number of grievances against the companies anyway, um, personal grievances. And so he, um, in effect, uh, produces a series of reports castigating London companies for not doing what they were supposed to do, particularly removing the Irish. Um, and, you know, they end up in, a, in the Star Chamber and they end up with a whopping great fine um, which, if it hadn't been for all of the upheavals of the mid 17th century, would have bankrupted them all. Um, they eventually didn't didn't pay that, uh, but they clearly were not that um, interested, and all that invested in the 17th century. In subsequent uh, centuries, actually, a number of the London companies um, did begin to invest um, in the north of Ireland, and actually, a lot of our sort of nice regular townscapes and landscapes in Northern Ireland today, uh, or in, in County Derry, Stroke London Derry, are the results of 18th and 19th century company investment, um, but not so much in the 17th century. Uh, I think that the failings of the Virginia Company are, are well known, and of course, you know, they are um, replaced by Royal Charter um, in the wake of the 1622 uprising. Yeah, and it's sort of tying right into this. When we return to Virginia, one of the sort of ironic consequences of the convoluted way these colonies are interconnected is that they have to compete for limited resources from these companies with investors and companies both overlapping sometimes and in competition with one another. And one of the consequences of this, you say, is that speculation ran rampant in both of the ventures. Oh yes, speculation is 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 great fun. I mean, we see it at Jamestown, you know, with with um, buying and selling of lands and supposedly building buildings that were never actually built, uh, which is clear from the archaeological record. Um, tremendous amount of speculation also um, in the Ulster plantation. Uh, if I stick with the example, Sir Thomas Phillips, you know, he was acquiring land in in different places and and trying to get involved in um, you know mining activity and, and ironworks. Um, one of our other interesting characters uh, in the same uh, mold, but with a, a unique twist of his own, is uh, Randall Aronach MacDonald, who, you know, um, is, you know, Highland Scot. He holds on to his Catholicism, but he manages to impress uh, James I, and he acquires a huge amount of territory in, um, you know, by, I mean, he already held it, as a McDonald, but he acquires it through English title um, in County Antrim. And then he starts to, you know, he builds um, this wonderful uh, English style town on his lands adjacent to his castle at Dunluce. 
And um, again, if you if you look at the plan on paper, it, this is a wonderful mercantile settlement. Um, he brings in Scottish merchants. It looks great on paper, um, but there's one crucial thing missing, uh, which is the ability to actually land a ship because Dunluce sits up on a great rock. It's a very defensive location. It's not a very good one um, as a mercantile settlement. So you begin to see some of the gaps between, you know, what you're meant to do as one of these aspirational entrepreneurs um, and adventurers, which is, you know, town building, castle building, um, acquiring lands, investing in industries, bringing in colonists. Uh, and, and sometimes those things are, are confounded by, um, in this case, physical uh, reality. Um, and it's sometimes hard to understand why he still did it, but it maybe was a mu as much to be seen to be building a town because that's what you, you know, a good successful uh, planter was meant to do versus what was actually um, going to be possible. And again, we see that imperative to try to develop uh, civic society in towns, you know, the history of Jamestown throughout um, the 17th century with all of the challenges that we all know, you know, coming from tobacco economy uh, and the landscape, and the riverscape, and the nature of, of the plantation uh, world. But people never stopped trying because, it, you know, there was a value to it. Now, you paint a really vivid, thick picture of the immiseration and uncertainty of Jamestown's early years. Can you give some examples to the listeners of the way that archaeology has revealed some of the textures of life in this formative period? Well, you know, again, here I'm obviously reliant on the work of colleagues in the Jamestown Rediscovery Project in terms of their work in the James Fort. But it's, you know, uh, I suppose the most obvious one in terms of the horrors, uh, you know, um, is the physical evidence for cannibalism. You know, the, the finding of, you know, the human remains of a young girl uh, with, um, you know, clear marks, particularly on her um, crania <coughs> of having been um <laughs> but the other thing that really strikes me about the archaeology in the early years at Jamestown is, you know, one of the reasons why the archaeology there has been, you know, has gotten so much attention beyond it being Jamestown is the richness of the material culture that's been unearthed. You know, amazing things, you know, very elite objects, the kinds of, of things that we don't generally find in the archaeological record, you know. Uh, jewelry, um, book clasps, armor, usable armor, all those sorts of things. Um, but if we think about where those materials, you know, have been unearthed from, a lot of them are coming from, you know, wells and other pits and features, and they're just being dumped. And these are usable items that are being dumped and thrown away. And to me, that really speaks of, you know, the horrors and the trauma of living in a place where everybody around you is dying. And it's quite likely, you know, that many of these things that we can sort of, you know, celebrate because of what they tell us about 17th century material culture, you know, belong to dead people. And they are being disposed of maybe because they are seen as tainted, uh, maybe because, you know, of, of associations with um, the dead person, fear, or just because nobody has use for this stuff anymore anyway, because it's it's so challenging to even stay alive for a day. Um, so I always think about that, you know, while I appreciate 
obviously the research value of these items themselves and those stories will continue to emerge. Um, I also see the connection to the trauma that was that was experienced at, at that time. An important scholarly shift that's been underway in, in recent years uh, and that this book participates in is to deliberately attend to indigenous voices that have been um, overlooked uh, for a European perspective in previous historiography. Can you give some examples of the way that indigenous practices and responses to colonialism fostered different colonial experiences between America and Ireland that make our um, uh, previous conflation of the two uh, uh, less valid? Oh, gosh, uh, where to even start? Um, there, you know, there, there would be so many. And again, I guess I could go back to, um, you know, the landscape um, and understandings of the landscape. Uh, the early colonial landscape in the Chesapeake is very much that um, of the Powhatan world. Um, I think what is also really, really important to acknowledge um, at this point in time is the continuity of Native societies in this region, uh, which for so long was um, underplayed, if not denied, in subsequent centuries. And so, you know, with the recent um, federal recognition of um, a number of uh, Virginia tribes, you know, there is an increasing um, confidence in uh, speaking more widely about shared traditions, continuities, um, and presence, uh, continuing uh, political presence in Virginia. And, you know, the Native people always knew these things. Uh, it's just taken historians, other scholars, uh, the general public, much longer, I suppose, to, to come to the same um, recognition. You know, one, one of the areas that I have speculated around, you know, thinking, just thinking archaeologically, I mean, obviously we could talk about, you know, the impact of foodways as well as place names, um, but also other more maybe intangible things, you know, like understandings of political economy, um, that's clear in the Irish example, um, but some of the political economy in the Chesapeake as well, I think that the English um, adopted and adapted to was undeniably influenced by native patterns, patterns of moving around the riverine landscape, you know, certainly species um, in terms of flora and fauna and so on uh, and so forth. I've also wondered about architecture uh, so much of the historical archaeology, the Chesapeake region has been looking at the very uh, seemingly unique form of earth fast buildings that the English constructed in Virginia and Maryland, um, often you know termed in permanent architecture, uh, mostly because it's not standing anymore, not because it was built to be impermanent. And we always look for English precursors um, for this style of building, uh, rather than actually looking right nearby and seeing that uh, Native people also constructed houses by putting posts and other buildings posts into the ground. So um, I think those those connections and those influences are there um, and they become much more obvious the more that we look at them. Uh, and again, you know, that that understanding of, of the landscape and the known world that marked the extent of the Virginia colony in the 17th century is a Powhatan geography. It is not an English geography. Um, it is something that the English learned from the Powhatans, but never credited them with. 
so I think I anticipate that so many more observations will emerge when we allow ourselves to think about what happened in that period, not as a sort of black and white uh, conquest, um, but rather a very messy, you know, much more messy, entangled process of of mutual learning um, back and forth. Everybody was, you know, transformation was on all sides. One framework that you engage with a lot and that I found really compelling was what you might call identity signaling. It allows you to really explore how objects, plans, and actions can be polyvalent and speak to multiple purposes or even divergent purposes. So to give an example from each side of the Atlantic, the economic ambitions of Governor Berkeley can both make sense from a financial perspective and mark him out ostensibly as a man of science. And uh, in Ireland, the plaster work of Edward Doddington can literally remake a piece of Gaelic architecture that he has usurped, while through its very shoddiness can seek to project a sense of confidence that is belied by the material conditions. So if you agree with my reading there, um, could you briefly describe Governor Berkeley's agricultural interests and Doddington's remaking of Gaelic architecture and discuss how they speak with multiple voices? Yes, that's two really, really good examples. I'll start with Doddington. Um, Edward Doddington was one of those English servitors, um, and he held um, an O'Cahan castle at a place called Dungiven, and that those lands were given to the Skinner's company. Uh, the Skinner's immediately hired Doddington to be their agent um, on the ground to uh, administer their lands, and the Skinner's got the worst land in the London Dairy Plantation, mountainous part of the Sperrins, uh, lovely river row running through it, but um, you're not the kind of place where you're going to build an agricultural wonderland. Um, and so Doddington inherited a situation where the, you know, the Irish would always be, native Irish would always be in, in demographic control. But he had to project himself. He had to speak to multiple communities, I suppose is one way I would put it. So he re-edifies the O'Cahan Tower House, so it looks like you know, a Gaelic stronghold, um, but he builds a manor house. This sounds strangely familiar, right, to Sir Thomas Phillips, um, at Limavady, Phillips was Doddington's brother-in-law. They both re-edify Gaelic castles. They both build English-style manor houses. At Dungiven, um, you know, Doddington is is clearly trying to cut some corners. Um, so parts of the building, his manor house, were actually lacked walls, um, were cut into the clay, which was then plastered over. So you wouldn't actually know how, you know, um, literally, you know, shaky the foundations were for his particular um, edifice. So he's, he's, he's trying to, to speak to uh, many different audiences in, in what he was doing there, as did Phillips. Um, one of the other things that Doddington did, uh, which is, is always interesting to try to contemplate his mindset, is the Dungiven Tower House and Doddington's Manor House are um, literally appended to uh, a medieval church. And within that, the chancel of that church uh, is an effigy tomb. And an effigy tomb is the sort of thing you would expect a Protestant reformer to get rid of, you know, immediately. And, um, and he doesn't. He retains 
that Okahan effigy tomb in the chancel of this church, which has been transformed from, uh, or theoretically transformed from Catholic worship to Protestant worship. Um, and he, he preserves it. And he preserves it, you know, he never says why. Um, there's no, no written information on this, um, possibly as a way of ensuring good relations with the native Irish, possibly as a way of trying to associate himself with a sort of historicity um, of the site, or possibly because, you know, we don't even know if, you know, how strong his own Protestant beliefs might have been. Um, even more importantly, which is to go down a slightly different avenue from your original question, Doddington dies in, um, you know, the early 16-teens, and Dungiven is actually held by his wife throughout, uh, you know, into the 1670s. Um, and so she is a very powerful person who is somehow able to uh, maintain that uh, Skinner's Company stronghold in the middle of lands dominated by uh, the native Irish. Uh, and so what role the projection of the tower house, the maintenance, the effigy tomb and the church buildings, along with the very, you know, at least outwardly aspirational manor house with its decorative um, internal plasterwork, you know, was, it, again, it's sort of, um, it, it's hedging a lot of bets, okay? Uh, in terms of Berkeley, um, probably uh, not quite uh, as, as complicated as the, as the Doddington tale, um, but interesting nonetheless, because, of course, Berkeley has to, you know, satisfy um, the crown. Uh, he also has to satisfy the very, uh, you know, obviously extremely factional period in early uh, Virginia history um, in terms of, obviously, you know, this is the time frame for Bacon's Rebellion uh, and so forth. So he's got multiple constituencies to try to um, maintain uh, some kind of balance with. Meanwhile, he also has his own status to try to um, maintain both as a model for what people should be doing and also, you know, as another one of those, um, you know, grasping entrepreneurs. So he's experimenting with all kinds of new agricultural crops, you know, growing grapes and so forth. Um, he certainly seems to have been supporting various different craftspeople uh, on his lands at, at Greenspring. Um, he's also trying to impose um, a civic civic order at Jamestown through the building of uh, more regular structures and street plans and trying to um, encourage people uh, to live there, uh, but in such a way as to maintain more of his own uh, control in his own, you know, in, engagements with uh, trying to maintain a degree of independence from direct crown control. So, uh, you know, you get the notion of somebody with, you know, six different hands juggling 16 different balls at the same time and hoping uh, to keep them uh, all up in the air, which is also, I think, what so many of the, the planters in the Ulster Plantation were also attempting to do. There's so much more that we could talk about, but I want to close by asking you to talk about a really incisive claim that you make in the conclusion, which is that, quote, ideas of America lie at the root of assumptions about Irish coloniality. The expansion of the British into Ireland thus appears as just a dress rehearsal for the real thing, the founding of the United States. Yes, I think it's, you know, that that relates to our, our desire for a simple uh, linear 
uh, kind of narrative. Um, and if things were all, you know, if we see them happening in Ireland being resolved, then they really work them out, um, you know, in North America. And we have that straightforward narrative to the founding of the nation um, and all the beliefs in the Constitution and uh, so on and so forth. And of course, that is, um, it doesn't look quite the same from the other side of the Atlantic in terms of, uh, you know, clearly the still unresolved nature of some of the things, political things that happened in the early 17th century in terms of, you know, the contemporary uh, island itself. Uh, but I think if I could slightly turn that conversation back to one way of expanding on your previous question, which is a sort of multiple viewpoints and the kind of um, messiness of the early 17th century, which challenges that kind of linear narrative. It's just to give you a quick example of the way some material culture is confounding um, understandings. And, and that is something I didn't write about in the book, but is a set of clothes that were dredged up out of a bog in Dungiven, um, townland, so near the site we were just talking about. And they date to the late 16th, early 17th century. Um, and they consist of a jacket, which is made in a clearly English style dating to the 1560s, 1570s, um, a pair of trues or trousers in a very tartan fabric, um, and uh, a large cloak or mantle. Uh, and we can immediately associate each of those um, different bits of clothing with different identities, our English jacket, the trues, um, I think we can we can associate with the Highland Scottish identity and the mantle with uh, a Gaelic Irish identity. But all of those those three articles of clothing were all being worn at the same time by somebody who died, you know, unremarked um, in a bog. So that person, you know, wandering around the landscape or or maybe walking purposely around the landscape in the late 16th, early 17th century, if you encountered that person, you wouldn't know how to, to pinpoint them. You might, if you were Gaelic-Irish, look at that mantle and see them as Irish, as a point of familiarity. If you're a Highland Scot, you might zone in on the truce, uh, or if you're English, you might look at that jacket. Um, so it, you know, the, I have no idea what the actual identity of the person wearing those clothes were, um, but it, you know, it begs questions um, and it highlights the ambiguity of all the processes in that period. Uh, and it's that ambiguity, the fact that nothing was resolved at the time, that challenges, again, our, our linear uh, narratives, which are all meant to sort of end up with, you know, the emergence of, of democracy and the emergence of the American nation. And the American nation um, and that idea of becoming American is also integrally, integrally, integrally linked with um, with Ireland and understandings of Irishness when we consider all of the later later migration from Ireland to North America. Um, you know the very important development of uh, an Irish American identity uh, and the way that an Irish American you know identity has viewed uh, history on the island of Ireland and that relationship between. Um, the English uh, and the Irish in the past, which also tends to be um, a, a linear 
at times oversimplified narrative, you know, that belies the kinds of complexity that comes out of a close look at the early 17th century period, when we clearly have, you know, um, much more complicated and close relationships uh, than our memories allow us to see. Well, the book is Ireland in the Virginian Sea. It is essential reading for both those interested in the history of North America and Ireland. And it just remains to thank Audrey Horning for being with us. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk with you.